John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 313.EZ2116, certificate number 30932, Dagen H. What are you doing? This is a one-way street. We're only going one way. Ah! You've driven overseas. I have. I Did mean, you get your driver's license in Korea? No. I didn't get a license till I moved back to the U.S. And is that because it was not commonplace for teens to drive in Korea? Yeah, most of my friends, I mean, a few of them who lived or drove around like the army base or the embassy housing compound, they would sometimes get licenses. But what about Korean kids? Uh, was driving a part of the of teen culture there? All the all the Korean kids I knew mostly had nice business or expat packages. <laughs> so they all, they all had drivers. Yeah, oh, really? Straight up. Like you were, we were like the only family without a driver. We were, we were kind of on the wrong side of the tracks. There's that guy in the, uh, in the Gangnam Style video that's like, like, like drifting in that parking garage. He has a driver's license. Uh, yeah, he's the only one. I mean, Korea was, it's a little different now, but Korea was a pretty rough place to try to learn to drive in the eighties. I mean, it was kind of anarchy out there. And you've driven, what, what overseas territories or countries have you driven in? Mm, not that many. When you go to the UK, do you get a car? Yes. We've rented cars, UK, continental Europe. So like France, Germany, Netherlands. Um, Total anarchy in Scandinavia. In, in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, with a lot of these places, you're dealing with little country roads once you get off the the main autobahn or or, uh, or A or M highway or whatever it is. Amazing to think that two cars could ever get through some of those little villages. Um, it's hard. I don't know what they do. Maybe yeah. it's just never come up. Maybe two cars have never <laughs> approached each other on some of these. But, the, you know, they either have hedgerows just coming right at you or the, yeah. these flinty walls. Flinty walls. That you're afraid might just like. That was my nickname in college. <laughs> flinty walls. It's a Bond girl oh, name. Flinty walls. Oh, yeah. That would be a great Bond girl. <laughs> The, uh, often I end up not driving as much, especially in left-hand drive countries because Mindy prefers, maybe she prefers that I not drive, but what she says is she prefers that I navigate. Oh, and she does the driving. She would rather not have to be in charge of knowing, cause I think she gets stressed out, especially if I'm like, which way at this roundabout? And if right. she doesn't know, then she's like, ah, oh yeah, she's on the spot. Suddenly she's, you know, the $64,000 question. 
So I, she's the pilot and you're the navigator. Yes. She would rather not, she would rather have me be the point of failure. I mean, I guess the driver can also just ram into a wall or a Hilux or something uh-huh. if, you, if you're, if that's what you're into. <laughs> have you ever driven in a country where the traffic laws were more fluid, where, you know, as you're saying in, in Korea, but it's true in a lot of countries in the world where the lines on the road are merely suggestions. People are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. The, the thing I remember about Korea in the eighties is lanes were just, um, people would often just drive right down the lane divider because that way they'd have sure a they, choice. They, yeah. You can go left or you can go right. If, if I commit to a lane, then you know, a whole, a whole universe is blocked off to me. Yeah. Here in the U S we say pick a lane, but, but really we don't even know the half of it. Uh, I remember, I don't know where have we been, where have we driven lately? That was a little dicey. Like in Costa Rica, the roads aren't great, but I don't remember the traffic being, you know, kind of scary in any way. Yeah. I mean, I've driven in Athens. Oh, you have? Where? Okay, that. (laughs) There are five lanes of traffic and maybe 15 different car, you know, 15 different lanes if you believed what the cars were doing. Just crossing a street in Athens made me kind of feel like I was on the Amazing Race or something. Yeah, it was was really incredible. And I, you know, drove all over Greece, so... Uh, so had the whole variety of experiences there, but yeah, I've driven in Africa. I've driven in places where, um, I've never driven in, in India though, which seems like the ultimate kind of, that's the boss level, heroic level of learning to drive. Or maybe some kind of East Asian capital. I mean, is, is, is Hanoi any, any better? I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's kind of a, the, the X axis is, um, is like the freewheelingness of it, and the y-axis is number of people trying to get from A to B. Yeah. So, uh, and you but, got bikes in the mix in, bikes, in a lot of these places. Scooters. That's kind of a wild card. But uh, I don't know if this is—I don't know if this is commonly known. It certainly was. It's—it's um, it's kind of hard for me to get my head around. But you know, a third of the people on Earth drive on the left-hand side of the road. It's got to be almost entirely India. It right? is mostly India. Although, you know, uh, uh, all of Southern Africa or Southeastern Africa, the former British colonies, mm-hmm. um, drive on the right, uh, uh, the left-hand side of the road. Um, Pakistan, also a, a, a large, you know, contributes a lot of just sheer uh, volume to that, to that figure. The only major non-British colony that has left-hand drive still is um, Japan. Well, not a colony. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I said. The only non-British colony. Oh, I see. Non-British colony. The only country. Not non-British colony. Comma, but, colony. Right. Yes. The only country that still has left-hand driving, not as a result of the Commonwealth, I think is Japan. Uh, Thailand also drives on the left and right. also was never colonized. The, and I, you know, the one time I was in Thailand, we actually ended up driving across the border into Cambodia to see Angkor. And I thought it would be fun to go by land instead of taking the quick 45-minute flight. Of course, you're a fun guy. Well, one of the reasons why is because I wanted to see what it looks like at a land border where a left-hand drive nation meets a right-hand drive one. Like, is there, is it just a stream of hilarious accidents all day? Or is there some kind of Mobius strip of a of a bridge tunnel thing? And what did you find? It was incredibly disappointing. Oh. I think I think there are I think maybe between like Macau and Hong Kong and the mainland, there are maybe better examples of weird engineering to get around this. Yes. Um, but at the at this particular Thai-Cambodian border point, it was um, there was so little land traffic that basically a car would pull up to the border, 
they'd get their papers checked and then they would drive through and just kind of switch sides. And then, you know, then a, a truck would come the other way and it would switch sides too. You know, you could, you could just kind of maneuver around whoever was switching. Well, there are in, so Thailand is one of the rare um, instances where left-hand drive and right-hand drive interact at on a, the, at on a the land, land border. Because yeah. if you think about it, the UK is an island, Japan is an island, Australia, New Zealand are both islands. Um, and, you know, South southeastern Africa is an island entire of itself. Yeah, there's not a lot of highways connecting those countries with the right-hand drive ones. But Thailand has overland borders with Laos, Cambodia, and Malaysia, all of which drive on the other side of the road. And there are ones that you describe where you kind of, it's a small border and there's a stoplight and you go through the stoplight yeah, and you're on the other side e of the road. Each, each green is one truck going through and that's how they do it. But there actually are kind of highway <laughs> interchanges that do this big Mobius, it's really, it's a Mobius strip where it's like, okay, you're on this side and then a big over, overleaf thing and a bridge and now you're on the other side and good luck, God bless. But all your atoms have been reversed. Yeah, you're, that's right. You're left-handed now, you're... the polarity of light is different in each retina. And they also border Myanmar that drives on the left because it's a former British colony. Oh, in interesting. Um, but, and there, there are, um, there are reasons why Japan and Thailand drive on the left, not on the right. Uh, but you're right that the British empire is, um, is predominantly the reason that a third of the people in the world still drive on the left. Uh, it's their little gift. We made fun of cricket, but there's an even better one. That's right. Weird, weird cars. Thank you. Thank you, United Kingdom. But it's kind of a strange state of affairs, given that really cars are still only about 120-odd years old, um, that this— oh, Mine is. <laughs> that, this, that this kind of uh, late-stage development— should be so divisive globally. Like it, it, we already were living in the, in the modern age. How is it that we failed to make this, you know, I mean, it's sort of like one ten two twenty electricity. That's exactly what it's like. Why or, or metric system and imperial system. Just trying to plug in your phone charger in any other country. You realize, Oh, there's six different styles of plugs. We, we never figured this out in time to, right. you know, turn the, Turn the train around, and it's it's strange to think that the technology that during a period of of like very quick technolo technological advances, cars, electricity, uh, airplanes, and trains that all kind of came online within about a hundred years of one another. We were living in a modern era, but not yet one that had standardization as a global. Practice. I guess because there was overlap, right? We're probably going to see this again with self-driving cars. You know, there were still horses, horse-drawn carriages on the road when the first traffic laws were being written. And so everything got codified with that in mind. And then when they went away, you were stuck with weird artifacts. Like yeah. uh, the whole thing about left and right-hand drive has origins in how carriages would drive, right? Well, a lot older than that, actually. Um, traveling on the left was an ancient practice. The Roman legions marched on the left. Um, all, like in the carpool lane? Uh, in the, well, they passed on the left, right. Uh, and it was actually for a long time a symbol of status. Like you, uh, if you were poor, 
you traveled on the right relative to the people traveling on the left. You passed on the left, basically, but also traveled. I, I guess if you were poor, you moved right to left to let the idea uh, is superior the, travelers because they're going faster than you. Probably they've got better tech and places to be, and you're just a dope. Well, what it what it just dumb Kevin in a in a mule cart has to stay has right. to has to stay right, but. But um, but the reason that traffic moved on the left had everything to do with what side of your body you wore your sword. Um, if you're a right-handed swords person, mm-hmm. you wear your scabbard and your sword on the left-hand side of your body. Right. And if you are traveling down a narrow path and a swordsman comes the other direction and you both have your swords on the left-hand side, your swords are going to bang into one another. And so, oh, this is not supposing any kind of encounter. You're not you're not ready for danger. It's just bumping scabbards with a dude, which is kind of. Oh, did they think that was gay? It's a little bit. It has overtones, but no, it actually has to do with an encounter. If you are if you are uh, walking on the right hand side and you draw your sword and he draws his sword, presuming that you're both male swords peoples, um, you're you're now. Offside, right? Your 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 sword is in your right hand side. His sword is in his right hand side, and now you have to pivot. You have to draw, uh, swing your sword all the way across your body you and might, across the road. You might cut off your own nose. Yeah. Whereas if or, you're, or a Vespa might come between you. If you're on the left hand side and you draw your sword, you are right there. You know, ready to ready to fence. But really, what are the odds that a uh, a, a random couple of passersby meeting in the street? How often would that turn into a duel? Do you think it was maybe like? Two out of three times back in the day. I think so. I mean, there was the a majority lot. Of, well, you know, you you can't get even down to the drugstore because you got to dual eight guys. We have a lot of brigand privilege here in our current life. I mean, when was last, when was last time you fought a brigand? Yeah, I don't just I don't think about brigands. Yeah, it's true. I don't have highwaymen. But at the time, any person you encountered on the road might suddenly draw upon you because I mean, I'm I'm. This I'm, does happen to me sometimes, but then I just roll a ten-sided die to, that's exactly to, to see how is. I did. Right, I'm I'm also deriving that knowledge almost entirely from Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but that was the standard. Um, you know, you have to have a convention more or less, uh, Athens notwithstanding. And for for most of history, uh, people traveled on the left-hand side of the road, and this was true in Japan too. It was part of the samurai cor- uh, code that you traveled on the left because the samurai also were wearing their swords in scabbards on their on the left-hand side of their body. It seems like a, it should be a minor part of the code. Don't you agree oh, that right. it should have more things about nobility of spirit? There should be a lot of things like that. And then maybe at the bottom, it's like, also walk on the left. Well, it you know, the devil's in the details. And you, could get, you can spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, the nobility or whatnot. But if your swords are banging into other guys' swords, how do you keep your dignity? Where's your tranquility of spirit? Right. It starts with the letter of the law, and then from, from whence proceeds the spirit of the law. Are you saying that's probably the number one samurai rule? Like, the first day of samurai school, they're like... Walk over there. Nope. Nope. Wrong. Tanaka, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Stand against the... Stare at the wall. I think it was the, I think sort of globally the convention until, uh, until the 18th century. Um, there was no reason, again, it's a, it's just a matter of, of, uh, habit and convenience. It wasn't really codified into law. There wasn't that much traffic on the road. Right. And I think even, even in. That's the Cambodian border issue. Yeah. If you, if you look at pictures, I mean, early. Uh, 19th century photographs of, of cityscapes, 
you kind of get the feeling that the cars are all just driving and cars and horses are all kind of mingling on the streets of New York. Kind of, uh, there isn't a clear one side is traffic is moving in one direction and the other, the other. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have this random picture of 1928 St. Louis in front of me. And what does it look like? It's, uh, there's, there's no direction here. Not really. There's just a few scattered wagons and a truck. Um, and in, in the, um, in the 18th century, it was sort of the first time that there was enough real traffic. Uh, and uh, uh, this was the dawn of moving freight in larger quantities from place to place. You know, right. we were developing a kind of manufacturing capitalist mentality in the West, certainly. Um, there were always wagons full of hay where you could hide um, outlaws right. or uh, rum or gold. That's right. Um, but that's, that's just a way to get in the, the castle gates. Yeah, and you're not encountering a lot of wagons also uh carrying bandits or gold or rum coming the other direction that you would be so confused that you would need like hard and fast rules. Do you think any of them were legitimately just hay wagons or do you think all of those were just smuggling stuff? I've ridden in a lot of hay wagons and they all have some kind of contraband. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Uh, But it was in the, it was in the, the sort of later 18th century that there started to need to be rules because there, because of just the increasing traffic (laughs) And what was kind of developing during that time was the the new technology that we covered in our uh, Conestoga wagon uh, article. Do we call these articles? Yeah, episodes? yeah, articles. We have a Substack uh-huh. called Omnibus, <laughs> and we uh, entries. I think we usually say. entries. That's it. Um, the idea of of larger wagons that were being pulled not by a, one or two horses, but by a team of horses necessitated kind of a new way of uh, a new way for a driver to control a team. You're wider. You're you're wider but you're also you also have a lot more horses to deal with. And in those early uh, iterations of very large wagons that were carrying a ton of freight, the wagons themselves didn't have a driver's seat. And the way that the the teamster controlled the team was that the that they actually sat on the rearmost left-hand horse. And again, it was because the majority of them were right-handed. And so in order to control a team of, of uh, six or, or more horses, if they sat on the rear left horse and had their whip in oh. their right hand, they could, you know, selectively, and this is from a time when people had an Indiana Jones level of dexterity with a whip. Everybody in America could just whip just a cigarette whoosh, out, of, out of somebody's whoosh, mouth in a vaudeville show. Whoosh. So you've got six horses and you're trying to turn them uh, around a, you know, a curved bridge. And with the, you know, with your right hand, you could, you could control a, a large team by being able to kind of snap your whip at any one of those individual horses. And if you were on, sitting on the right hand side, you'd be whipping across your body and so the convention became that these large teams would drive on the right-hand side uh, because when you're passing another team, you want to have your – if you're sitting on the back left horse, you want to have a view up the side of the team to make sure your wheels don't clam yeah. into a, a, a wagon coming the other way. You want to be closer to the opposing traffic. That's right. And so during this period, the first few um, – 
the first few countries started to, you know, kind of in the the mid to late 18th century, there started to appear, uh, like in 1752, Russia was pretty early in in passing a law that traffic kept to the right. Um, In America, it happened a little bit later, but America was one of the places where these these big teams started to be a function or, you know, to create um, the need for there to be traffic laws. Uh, in Britain, these large teams, these sort of cross-country uh, Teamster wagons weren't as, it weren't in uh, common use. It was... Why? You know, Why do you think? And there just wasn't, um, there wasn't that kind of in, I mean, need to move enormous goods and services that that they couldn't better use boats. Oh, right. Um, so teams of horses were still kind of smaller wagons with fewer horses that were moving goods from barges to inside the city, but they didn't have this sort of uh, economy of wagon train that wa- that played such a large role in the United States. So that's the difference between left and right hand side countries turns out to be who was using barges versus who was using big wagons? Well, not necessarily. What, what happened then was um, that those kinds of large wagons became very popular in France. And this was just prior to the Napoleonic era. And Napoleon, when he came to power and... Annoyed your mom. And annoyed my mom and everyone else in Europe. Um, Napoleon's armies... Marched to the right. They marched on their stomach. Uh, Napoleon's army marched on your. <laughs> they stomach. They marched on the right side <laughs> of their stomach. Um, they, you know, they, as they invaded Europe, they hewed right, and because they were, they had, um, they'd picked up that habit from this sort of large, the, the large team technology. Which, Even though in every earlier era, soldiers would have tra- would have walked on the left. This was the first army to march on the right. Yeah, and this is also, a, it's a, in some ways a sign of modernity because we're no longer carrying swords. Mm. We're, you know, this is, we're a new mechanized army. And, um, and this is, a, this is kind of a, this is the way we, one of many ways that we express that it's a new era. And in fact, in the United States, that transition uh, to where uh, marching on, or I'm sorry, driving your teams on the right actually had a kind of nationalist uh, side to it because when we left the British Empire, this was a this was again a sign that uh, an indication of the American way. We had we had bigger wagons and more ground to cover. It's the same reason we don't use metric today, right? Because everyone else does, <laughs> and screw them. <laughs> But when Napoleon set out across Europe and conquered all of, um, you know, all the countries that he conquered, he brought right-hand driving with him and set into, uh, set into action a kind of European turmoil where after Napoleon was, you know, defeated and sent to his island exile a couple of different times, um, the countries that the Napoleonic armies had conquered retained right-hand driving and the empires where he'd not, he'd made no inroads retained left-hand driving. So mm. post-Napoleon, Austria, 
Hungary, Czech Republic continued to drive on the left. Whereas uh, France, Germany, the low countries now were right-hand drivers. Russia had established right-hand driving in the mid-18th century, and so Finland was a right-hand driver. Denmark drove on the right. Sweden remained a left-hand driver. Um, Spain, although, you know, a vassal state uh, of Napoleon, Spain very curiously, and and, uh, we'll get to this in a minute, but um, maintained a kind of Half and half, go your own way. Half and half, <laughs> not going to work. And in Austria, you know, Napoleon invaded Austria up to a point, but never completely conquered the nation. Okay. And within the nation of Austria, until World War II, half of the country drove on the left and half of the country drove on the right. And it perfectly coincided with where... The, the the furthest advance of the Napoleonic armies. But the border towns must hate that, just like the places in Indiana where it's half daylight savings time or, or used to be. Well, again, most of those places <laughs> had villages with flinty walls and really only room for one lane of traffic at any given point. And there are plenty of places in Europe where who knows what side of the road you're driving on, even now. Yeah, you're driving in the middle. You're driving wherever you can drive. Opal comes the other way. Yeah, it's, o- it's only in... It's only on the Autobahn or in places where the highways are 20th century highways that it, it, or roads through cities that it's even really clear to this day. Um, By the way, this terrifies my, um, some of my siblings and in-laws when they come up to Seattle. We often have you know, little tiny roads that are kind of de facto one way, a lot of neighborhood roads here. And you know, people just kind of figure it out. <laughs> somebody blinks uh, in the game of chicken and moves into the last available parking spot or hydrant or whatever it is. And somebody comes the other way. It horrifies them. Oh, because they're from Salt Lake where the roads are super big. Sure. Well, they're from some smaller town where every road is, yeah. Or Utah where every road is a Brigham Young said every road had to be 12 lanes for some reason. Well, you, so you could turn your horse cart around in the city, Gotta right? Gotta be able to turn your wagon around. <laughs> Isn't that what it is? That's that's that, the legend. That's definitely the legend. I have yeah. no idea if that's actually true, but the roads are very wide, so. Well, so enter the 20th century, and it's um, surprisingly a jumble globally. There are an awful lot of countries that are still either de facto or by law driving on the left-hand side and lots of other countries on the right. And in and Europe, it's a patchwork. Africa is absolutely a patchwork. Um, there are, uh, there are as many rules as there are, uh, continents. And in Japan, uh, and this is happening completely kind of, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving from the Edo period with this, um, with this habit, this this left hand side samurai era. Uh, samurai era policy, but it was in the in the mid nineteenth century after Japan opened to the West that she decided that that rail was going to be the big game there. Uh, I just gendered Japan because it's just how we do. In, 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 in because I'm a boomer. I usually say they. They because not because they've expressed a preference, but just because there's so many of them. They're, they're, right. There's a lot, and they're not all women. But Japan decided to uh, to build a rail network in the late 1800s, mid mid late 1870s, and 
uh, it may not surprise you that the Western powers all took a big interest in being the uh, the help meet supplier, yeah, of of rail technology, and the United States and France and Britain all kind of uh, made <clears throat> proposals, and Britain won the bid, and so it was the it was the UK that helped the Japanese build their initial trains, and absolutely put those trains on the left hand side. Um, and does this mean that all countries the rail systems tend to mirror the the direction of Automobile the rail systems do, and there are there are plenty of examples where the rail system was built to travel on the left-hand side uh, in conjunction with traffic that used to travel on the left, and then traffic moved to the right, but the rail didn't. Yeah. So you'll see you'll see countries like Portugal where the rail is one way and the and the cars are the other because it's easier to move cars. Right, you just have to change signage, but there's more infrastructure on track. Well, in fact, you could just switch it on track, but who knows? Who knows why? <laughs> you could just move, make the trains go the other direction. Because trains are run by crotchety, old-timey men <laughs> with, with little glasses perched on the bridge of their nose. It is true about infrastructure that it isn't just signage, right? I mean, a train station is on one side yeah. and uh, and all the hoppers and all the, I mean, everything is oriented. Uh, and one of the big, the big expenses, one of the main expenses of switching sides is transit. Um, you know, buses only open on one side, right? It's a, a trams open on one side, typically. I think they should just leave the buses until they run out the natural end of their lives and people just have to dismount in traffic and yeah. hope, hope for the best. Right. I love the idea of buses stopping and you have to get out in the middle of the street. <laughs> little, and then little game of Frogger. <laughs> the bus leaves. Mean, you, you don't cross the street there. You kind of edge around the bus carefully. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, and in Amsterdam, you do see uh, trams that drop their passengers off on an island in the middle yeah. of the road. But yeah, it's it's uh, you you kind of don't think about it, but in the country uh, where you live, the trains are are mirroring the roads or vice versa. Hmm. And so when the you know when cars entered into Japan, the system was already established: left hand drive, and it never. You know, because it was an island, it didn't have to interact with other countries, and it retained, just like the UK, retained its left-hand drive against all other odds. Uh, Europe, European countries and uh, North American countries kind of uh, ad hoced their way into which side of the road they drive on now. Um, in 1924... Canada had a kind of interesting situation because Quebec drove on the right. No. Yeah. And they're borrowing their their francophone Napoleonic tradition. They absolutely were. Uh, and the rest of Canada was following the was, sort of British it, tradition. It was British Canada, yeah. It was uh BC, I think that BC was one of the early provinces to switch over because they had a you lot mean more. You the comic strip BC? When, yeah. they were, when they were on those little wheels? <laughs> yeah. They would go on the right? Yeah, birds got hairy feathers in BC. <laughs> um, Apteryxes. But they switched over. They had a lot more sort of, uh, and the Atlantic provinces, I guess. I mean, it was a gradual switch. And in the 20s in Canada, like if you were driving from Winnipeg to uh, to Edmonton and the and it changed over, like how would you even know? You're probably How would you just, notice? You're just driving whiskey into the U.S., right? Yeah. That's, that's probably 80% of all road traffic. <laughs> right. Uh, Portugal in 1928. Poland and Spain, I guess, switched in 24. But again, 
This is all left or right, right? Uh, th- this is all going from left to right. Although in Spain, in Barcelona, they already drove on the right. In Madrid, they drove on the left. So huh. uh, until the 1930s, or at least until, yeah, I mean, until... Until Franco. Until Franco. Settled this. Settled the... Definitively anti-Barcelona. And this is... So a, if the other side had won the Civil War, France would, Spain would drive on the left, maybe? No, no, no. That it's Barcelona drove on the right. Oh, right. Bar- oh, uh, so, so he actually conformed to, I guess, what would have been the European standard. I guess by that the point. Catalonians won the culture war, at least. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. The... the they 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 won the driver war. They won the they, you know what? Barcelona in the streets, Madrid in the sheets. Uh let's see. And then we get to World War II. And a lot of the a lot of the countries that were Japanese colonies, uh like Korea, were driving on the left as a as a part of their the, the colonial imperative. Yeah, they probably didn't have too much wagon traffic predating their their new colonial occupiers. But Hitler, and this is not to discredit driving on the right, but Hitler was a real drive on the right kind of guy. And so when Austria unschlussed into Germany, uh, on that day, with very little forewarning or any kind of infrastructural change... Uh, by decree, all of Germany switched over to, or all of the sort of German greater co-prosperity sphere, uh, all switched over to right-hand drive in a single They switched night. Austria the, the same day they invaded uh, or annexed. I, I, yeah, I mean, the, but the Czech Republic also was still driving on the left. So the Von Trapps get home from their honeymoon and suddenly all the signs are different? It's like, well, the signs aren't even different. You're just driving on the other side of the road. And there were a lot of accidents precisely because they hadn't switched over the signage or changed any of the, you know, what little infrastructural uh, signage there was in these more rural parts of Austria. But I mean, it's not like... The Czech Republic was rural entirely. Right. Big cities there. Uh, so it all switched over. Hungary didn't actually switch until the German invasion in 44. And these were all countries that were left over. They, they, they were ones that Napoleon hadn't reached. And they retained left-hand driving as a middle finger to Napoleon that whole time. It's funny to imagine these waves of right-hand driving just coming as, a, as military invasions, like you know, a tide of Napoleon... And then it recedes, leaving Wet Beach. Yeah. And then a tide of Hitler goes further. Oh, and then Wet Beach. A little bit more pushback. But but World War II, at least in Europe, really um, standardized right-hand driving. And I think all you have to do is be driving down the wrong side of the road and a column of panzers is coming at you to realize, I guess that's going to convince you maybe to... Start driving on the right, or I mean, get rolled over. So if you're a, if you're dedicated Antifa today, you should be driving on the left in in defiance of Hitler's preference. Right, except except you'll get that's, hit by a truck. Well, you're just you're just uh, mirroring the the colonial empire of the British. Which oh, I mean, right. which side? Which, Both I mean, sides are now tainted. That's right. If you're if you're Antifa, I think you need you sell your you, car and you buy. You're a, on a hoverboard. Yeah, <laughs> right. A hoverboard, really. <laughs> I was going to say like electric bike or solar wheel or something. Well, but you know, bikes have to conform to these rules of the road too. In theory. In theory. Do you uh, know, here's a little update about me, John. Go on. 
I put stuff into my scalp twice a day. With to, a with a giant hypodermic needle? That's right. <laughs> I've been getting the COVID vaccine twice a day in my skull. Wow. No, seriously, though, what do you put in your hair twice a day? Uh, uh, in addition to uh, delightful pomade. You yeah, your, your, your whale oil pomade. I was worried about getting a little thin on top. Yeah. So I use an FDA-approved hair loss medicine on my head. Has it been working? Are you feeling I think it's. I think it is thicker and richer. I think it has both slowed the hair loss, but I think also it has actually grown back a little bit up top. And do you feel like I you're... took before and after, uh, after photos, like with a cell phone? Yeah. But it's kind of. It turns out that's not a good way to take photos of yourself, and I can't actually tell. I think the proof is. Do you feel that your wife is more attracted to you? Yes, and she hates bald guys. She's always talking about it. No, that's not true. That's what she says to me Just, on our on our on our uh, private uh, text thread. <laughs> on your little direct, <laughs> she's like, you know DM what? Thread? I hate bald guys. Mostly Jeff Bezos, but also all the others. Uh, and if you don't want to be bald like Jeff Bezos, or even if you do, <laughs> <laughs> we're recommending to you Keeps, an online service that gets you FDA approved hair loss medications. But without any of the inconvenience of a doctor's visit and with the great uh, price breaks that come with generic versions. Losing your hair is a super common thing. It happens to two out of three uh, guys as they get older. It happens to women, too. Don't feel bad about it, guys. Um, it's a this thing. happens to everybody. It's just a thing. Uh, and, it, and you can do something about it uh, because both of these FDA-approved hair loss products are available through Keeps. One of them is a topical and one of them is a, is a, um, like an ingestible, right? One of them's a, one of the uh, FDA approved treatments is a pill and one of them is a salve. I'll take your word for it. I yeah. use the salve, the yeah. balm, the, un, the unguent, yeah. uh, uh, what you, the, they, they take a while to work. So you don't want to wait until the hair's already gone and then think, you know what? I'm going to try that thing. Ken and John were always talking about in those ads. I didn't skip. Right. Like you kind of want to do it. <laughs> preemptively like it takes you know it's a four to six month process of seeing results so, so here's what you do you go to keeps k-e-e-p-s dot com slash omnibus and you'll get your first month of treatment for free wow that's k-e-e-p-s dot com slash omnibus and you'll get your first month free k-e-e-p-s dot com slash omnibus it really seems like we don't think people know how to spell the word keeps. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. That's K-E-E-P-S, but don't put the dashes in, dot com slash omnibus. That's a K as in kilo, E as in echo, echo, P for Papa, S for Sierra, Niner. No nine, though. No Niner. Dot com slash omnibus. So at the end of the war... Uh, there had been quite a few countries that switched, um, uh, countries in Europe that switched to right-hand driving. But uh, in Asia, when America invaded Okinawa, mm -hmm. um, America instituted right-hand driving in Okin Okinawa as part of its wow, power move. power move, and in Korea also. So Koreans were driving on the left until the end of World War II. But then when, why when the MacArthur's occupation began on, the main, on mainland Japan, why didn't, or the Japanese homeland, why didn't they do the same? 
I I feel like it was just infrastructurally uh, incredibly difficult and and largely unnecessary. Yeah, right? I guess the war's over at that point. In Okinawa, the U.S. military controls something like thirty percent of the land area, and in taking over Okinawa, they they well, and we see it today. Like the principle of the American military occupation of Okinawa was this is now an American territory. Or I mean, that was the, the kind of mentality that they had. Whereas Japan, they always were sensitive to the idea of it. And I feel like that's uh, introducing right-hand drive in Korea was possible because of uh, the, the anti-Japanese sentiment was so, right. uh, so strong that you could introduce it as a kind of reversal of Japanese colonialism. You're saying there was less anti-Japanese sentiment in Japan. In Okinawa, right, which considers itself part of Japan, even though the indigenous people there, uh, like Mr. Miyagi, are, you know, like, ad- agitate for their own identity. They see identity. both sides. He's yeah. like those guys in Hawaii that fly the Hawaiian flag upside down or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and it turns out that the side that you drive on as an expression of your new status at the end of uh, colonialism, uh, th- th- it was a way of expressing your uh, your anti-imperialism. It, it, as late as the 1970s, Nigeria and Ghana both switched over to right-hand driving to as a as a you know fu to the British as much as an fu to the British as to. I mean, they probably also had French colonized neighbors, so that it would ease. It would ease regional traffic issues with, right? Well, yeah. And and if you, I mean, if you look at... Niger borders, Niger, and a bunch of other countries that would have had right-hand drive. Yeah, you, you can see in the, in the way that Africa, even now, you know, is there's this British empire, kind of the, the, Ro- the roads line um, that, yeah. that still is on the other side, but yeah, Cecil if you roads. were, if you were, if you were, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the roads. I mean, where they were going, they didn't need roads, but, uh, <laughs> but he was there anyway. But those central African countries, yeah, they would have been completely enveloped in right-hand driving nations. And so, so it, it, um, it, it is a way of kind of expressing independence or was for a long time. And, and Pakistan actually considered after um you know after the partition. The, the partition considered switching over to right hand driving but in evaluating the um the you know kind of conditions on the roads it was they they realized that there were a lot of team you know uh, people driving teams camel teams even uh where it was the convention to get the team going and then the driver would fall asleep <laughs> and the teams would just you know, kind of go through the night. So you can't change the, you can't just change the signs. You've got to retrain hundreds and thousands of livestock. That's right. And so that alone kind of became a determining factor on whether or not, you know, it was like, is this worth doing? I mean, this is going to cost a lot of money anyway, but we're going to have all these livestock collisions. Confused uh, oxen. Right. So, um, so they, they elected, they elected not to make the switch. But our story today concerns... Oh, what's the timestamp here? <laughs> concerns uh, one of the last European, you know, continental European countries to make the switch, uh, and that is Sweden. And Sweden 
was surrounded by right-hand drive countries. Finland. Is that right? Norway and Finland were all Norway, Denmark, all right-hand drive. Finland because of its connection to Russia. Russia. And, uh, you know, Denmark and Norway made um, made right-hand driving the law uh, very early. I think Denmark was in the 1790s, mandated it, right-hand drive. And Sweden was uh, was the was an outlier, and it was a it was kind of a source of, um, well, it, it was weird how it played in Sweden because it was a source of kind of nas- national individuality, although the Swedes throughout the twentieth century, you know, they love American cars. I don't know if you know this about Sweden. There are a lot of Harley Davidson clubs <laughs> there. And if you follow the vintage car market, like the hot rod car market, a lot of American hot rods, vintage, you know, Camaros and whatnot, are are purchased by Swedes. They're having their kind of gloomy Bergman-esque musings yeah. from a Mustang. They love Mustangs up there. And, um, and so into the 50s and 60s, the Swedes, although Britain was right there and could have been importing rovers... They wanted American cars, and which all had steering wheels on the left. Yeah, and uh, at the at by the mid sixties, ninety percent of the cars on the road in Sweden were left hand drive, you know, made by the United States for right hand driving. And do you get the sense that, uh, like, really, how how different is the driving experience to be driving a kind of car where you're further from the center line? I mean, do you do you find it all that? I find it hard to adjust, first of all, to where my center line is when I have to do that. I do too. But I don't know if it's inherently that much worse, more dangerous. Well, what happens is if you're driving, if you're driving a left-hand drive car on the right-hand side of the road, which we do here in the United States, um, you're looking at oncoming traffic where you and the op- opposite driver are both sitting on the closest side of the car yeah. to one another. So you can pass another car fairly close by. You can do a little steering wheel uh, wave with your hand. You if go, you hey, want. what's up? Beep, beep. Whereas if you're driving, say, a German car in the United Kingdom where you're on the opposite side uh, from the other drivers, I mean, I found... it's only It only moves you like three feet. It does, but I found it, uh, driving in the UK... In a in a left hand drive car, oh, which you have done, I've done many times. Why? Be- you well, t- because took a ferry from Calais. Yeah, when we would when we would begin our tour, our booking agent uh, was located in Hasselt, Belgium, <laughs> and so we would fly into Antwerp or whatever. We would drive out to Hasselt. He would have rented us a Sprinter van, and we would go to a rental agency and get our amplifiers or whatnot, and we'd tour around the Low Countries. And then we would go to Dover and take the ferry over. And it made no sense to go to the UK and rent all that stuff again yeah, because it was an overland tour. And so we would often spend a couple of weeks driving around the UK in a Belgian van. And we had to have transformers for all our electrical stuff because we had American – some of our stuff was American, our pedal boards or whatnot. But so I'm driving a big van, which is already complicated – and I'm on the wrong side of the of the car. And I can't tell you the number of rearview mirrors I knocked off of parked cars driving through the UK. I should be in jail. You're right still now. famous. There are that's right. It's the it's the I was I was known throughout the continent as as the rearview mirror bandit. 
Um, because I just couldn't ever quite get myself. I mean, by the end of the tour, I was pretty good at it, but, uh, but you just don't know where the center line is. And it's, and because you're looking across, I mean, one of the craziest things for me in driving in the UK is realizing that to look at my rear view mirror, I have to look up and to the left. And I'm so used to looking up to the right that I would, I would look up and out the window. (laughs) Nope. Nobody's coming. Looking for my rear view mirror and like, Oh, Oh, it's over here. And so it was, it was the opposite effect of that where my rear view mirror was in the right place. But what was I looking at? I wasn't looking at the lane. I wasn't looking at traffic the way I was used to. And, um, and that, you know, there are a lot of people in the UK that drive American cars and here in the United States, if you, you if you want a fancy wedding, you know, you're in a white, uh, Rolls Royce or if you're, you know, you're a hipster and you're driving like a. Japanese domestic market Weird GTR or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but there, you know, there are a lot of, of issues as more and more cars enter the world. And this was the thing that was happening in Sweden in the forties and fifties, the population of Sweden and the number of cars on the road, uh, like Sweden was still kind of a rural backwater really. Uh, and then experienced this this boom in population after the war and a real boom in the number of drivers on the road. Um, and in, in by some statistics, like there were three times more cars uh, in 1965 than there had been in 1955. And so all of these, um, all these traffic problems, and in particular, given that most of the Swedish cars were the wrong we're driving on the wrong side because this is the crazy thing volvo elected to build left-hand drive cars only just because they knew they were mostly an export market yeah they were trying to export them and and so they didn't do both they didn't do both huh and swedes weren't really fascinated with british cars and i think you know the quality of british cars in the early 60s will bear this out. So the bulk of the, so the bulk <laughs> of the cars on the road were designed for right-hand yeah. side driving even though they didn't have it. So from the so it became an issue in Sweden pretty early on in the 20th century. They were constantly debating in the parliament like that we should get in sync with the rest of Europe, we should get in sync with the rest of the world. But that individuality and that kind of uh the the kind of rural preference but also just the the stubbornness that any that any nation has. It's always easier to not reform something. That's why we still have pennies. Uh, they kept uh, the you know they would have a referendum and the the citizens would vote down any change and they kept doing that even as infrastructure was expanding. I mean, if they had made this change in 1919, it would have been a lot easier. So six signs. But as late as 1950. <clears throat> eight or nine, they had a, you know, they had a big popular vote on it and 83% of Swedes voted against making any change. But this was a time you may or may not recall the late fifties, early sixties when there was a, there was still, um, a lot of conformity and a lot of, um, there was a lot of deference to men in power. 
Yeah, I've seen the movies. Yes, this is how it was. People wore suits and there were people in charge. If a guy had a fedora, you had to do what he said. Whereas today, if a guy has a fedora, you just need to... You just roll a 10-sided die and get him out of there. <laughs> uh, we see we saw this in Seattle as late as the 1990s when we as a population voted in favor of um, a monorail in the city three separate times. And yet the governing bodies the city council in particular, but the legislature too, um, somehow found a way not to build it. If you like, why even vote for three monorail for monorail three times? Just vote for a single tri-rail. Oh, interesting. And you save so much trouble. That, I, you know, I don't think anybody really proposed that. That's a great idea. We also voted against, we voted twice <laughs> against building a brand new stadium downtown. And that happened anyway. And that happened anyway. So even as late as the 1990s and maybe even still today, there your, are Your vote doesn't <laughs> count. Your vote doesn't count. But or, in the 50s in Sweden, in the late 50s, in spite of 83% of the people not wanting to switch, really preferring to be the last uh the last nation on continental Europe with the exception of what are the I think uh it's still left-hand drive in Gibraltar, Malta and uh uh, yeah, Malta is for sure. Yeah. I guess Gibraltar is, but Gibral that doesn't count. No, not really. I mean, there there are uh, Sweden was the real last holdout. Um, in spite of the vote, the government said, "Actually, we're going to do this anyway." The vote was kind of just a little bit of a gag. If only we had thought of that with Brexit. But the the Swedes, being who they were, said, "You know what? We're going to roll this out after a very very long." Uh, propaganda campaign. Uh, we're going to educate everyone over the course of years. They did not follow the Hitler model. Um, they decided in the early 60s that they were going to make the switch and began a four-year period of educating the people of Sweden about this, what, what would end up being a, a big change in a single weekend. Um, yeah, you can't do this incrementally. No. It's better to rip the Band-Aid off. And it became, a, um, it became a whole kind of branding campaign. Uh, there, was a, there was this beautiful logo, which was uh, the letter H with an arrow kind of crisscrossing the letter oh, H, come, starting on the right, left-hand yeah. side and crisscrossing over and going up the right-hand side. I hope that's not how they did it. Uh, what does the no. H stand for? Well, the Swedish word for uh, right is Hooger. Okay. And so this whole campaign was called Hooger traffic, which just means right traffic. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there were brochures printed, but the Hooger traffic logo uh, ended up becoming kind of a, like a fashion statement, like women's underwear had the Hugo logo on it. I don't even know if they said Hugo logo, but Hooger logo. Luger. Um, it was like popular on t-shirts. I mean, it was a, it was a branding campaign. I mean, they're, they're, they're public minded, the Swedes. They are. They like to get behind a, a, a nice communitarian initiative, even if they voted against it they, um, multiple times. They, there was a campaign to come up with a theme song and, uh, the winner of the theme song, the theme song was written by a, by a reporter, but it became a hit, kind of a surprise hit. It got up to number five on the charts. And that song was Young Folks by Peter Bjorn and John. Uh, no, that song's been canceled, I'm afraid. No, it was, the, uh, the song was called Keep to the Right, Svensson. <laughs> <laughs> it became kind of a hit. 
And what's interesting is that in Swedish slang, keeping to the right also means be faithful to your wife. So that's also good advice for Swenson. That's right. Assuming he's straight and married. So the Swedes love a double entendre. And uh, and then this was this had that triple element of like this is the opposite of a double entendre because it's not dirty it's uh, it, it makes an extremely clean joke it does make a clean joke be yeah. faithful to your wife you don't oh, want to go left naughty <laughs> <laughs> don't go left that 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 way leads ruin leads to ruin uh, so after a very long public education campaign um, on the the weekend. Of September third, nineteen sixty-seven. Now this is one year before I was born, so I was I was born into a world where the Swedes had already made this transition. And you can probably sense that about yourself. Yeah. It just seems wrong the idea of a Swedish of Svensson passing somebody on the yeah. Think about think about Svensson keeping to the left. It it offends the senses. And yet I find it very titillating. Right, Svensson shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> But it went off without a hitch, and uh, at the time, the you know the event was was uh, like a global news story, and and the sense is that uh, newspaper reporters all flooded into Stockholm because they were waiting for the carnage. Something crazy to happen. Yeah, they're all standing in the in the street with their notepads out and a little card in their fedoras, waiting for it to be awful. They want a Godard movie, and they did. A, in a, in a lot of Sweden, they made the transition over the course of about 24 hours, they well, said. Well, that's what I was going to ask. If it's a collision in time rather than space, I, it's a whole different set of issues. Does everybody just go home? Is there a time when nobody's supposed to be on the road? Or at a certain time, do you synchronize your watches and just veer into oncoming traffic? So what they did was, was pretty genius. Uh, unlike Hitler in Austria, they actually spent— That's always a good way to start a plan. Right. Unlike, Un- history, unlike Hitler. Hitler in Austria, I prefer macaroni and cheese with hamburger. I prefer Edelweiss. Um— what they did was they spent a, uh, you know months and months actually putting up new signage and then covering it with black plastic. You know, it's you see that now when they put yeah. a new a new stoplight in and it's all kind of there and it's not on yet and you kind of get used to the idea like, oh, it's there's exciting. a thing here now. Yeah. It's like, oh, new ride at Disneyland, what's going to happen? But everybody knew what was happening and that w- one of the catchphrases was like we're not trying to f- we're not trying to get 99% of the population to know that this is happening. We're trying to get 100% of the population. Like zero um you know, zero That's a good entropy goal. here. It's right? a good goal. Because imagine if one in a hundred Svensons is still, <laughs> is still just driving into <laughs> oncoming traffic. Just you had a team, uh, like running a team of camels and fast asleep <laughs> at the wheel. So all the signage was there. And in the it was a, a thing where, you know, a huge army of, of civil servants and volunteers were all kind of waiting to switch the signs around and take some down and put others up. Um, but in fact, the, you know, the fulcrum moment was at four fifty four fifty in the morning on the morning of September 3rd, all traffic in Sweden was to stop. And some places the the transition was happening, uh, over a longer period where, um, you know, non-essential traffic was banned from the road from, for, for a whole day. And it was only, you know, key uh, essential drivers that were on the road. Like but, Seattle for a few months during COVID. Yeah, wasn't that nice? Would have been a great did you ever go downtown it. during that period? I actually did. Yeah. It's fantastic. Tumbleweeds in the streets. I am, I am legend. But the cars that were on the road, and in Stockholm, of course, there were a lot of 
a lot of cars that felt like they were necessary cars probably weren't just and um, and kind of like when they tore down the viaduct in Seattle there were a lot of people on the viaduct at at uh 11:59 p.m. including you including me <laughs> and uh and it turned into a real scene up there people spinning donuts and setting off firecrackers but that did not happen in in community minded Sweden no at 4:50 everyone stopped whoa like a twilight zone did they collaborate and listen they they did they stopped collaborated and listened and then at 5 a.m traffic started again and everybody switched over to the other side of the road and it uh it went off without a hitch and it was you know it's become a symbol of kind of swedish efficiency but also you know uh, uh, like a tremendous accomplishment that wouldn't be possible today, and people reflect on this all the time, like, could we do this now? And it was because there still was a very centralized and conformist uh, idea of, like, political authority, a kind of um, a top-down mentality in government that doesn't exist in Sweden now or anywhere. Well, I mean, you could probably do it in North Korea. You could do it in North Korea. That's right. But it's, it. I mean, when it's... It's easy to think of all of these large infrastructure issues as kind of being fait accomplis or um, fates accompli. Fates accompli. Thank you. Uh, we don't have to think about them anymore. But of course, we talk about it a lot here, like the rail gauge switch um, that that or the rail gauge nonconformity that still exists throughout the world. Um, and and looking forward, there are all these. Uh, situations like you mentioned, self-driving cars that are going to be, um, that's a system that's going to require a lot of conformity, right? You can't have three different systems um, working on three different principles. And it's going to be phased in gradually. So, you know, you're going to have to allow for a lot of different levels of um, right. of adoption and existing the, on the roads at the same time. You've got a bunch of different super large corporations trying to have their system be the one they're not necessarily collaborating, although I think they learned from the Betamax uh, debacle that really they should at least agree on cheese, right? They should at least agree on some. Let's have a white paper for some systems. But you know, here in the United States, I think it's inevitable that internet become a public utility, right? Just like electricity is. Uh, but there are a lot of companies that don't want to see that happen, and it requires a lot of coordination, a lot of agreement on the part of people. Where really, uh, fifty years ago, uh, a government could still kind of do that by fiat, um, and that's maybe less likely to happen now. In Seattle, in Seattle, in Seattle, people will do what they're told. We'll we'll have internet as a utility. We my, like mark my words. We like to march quietly in unison places. But what's kind of interesting is that Sweden was not the last country to uh, to go through this change. Iceland. Although Denmark drove on the right, Iceland was still driving on the left as late as 1968. And the success of Sweden's switcheroo... That's really interesting. ...inspired Iceland. Because there's no incentive for them to do so as a sparsely populated and isolated island, except, I guess, the fact that maybe everybody has cars with steering wheels on the left. And that's the thing. It just sort of depends on where you want to import your cars from. Um, And... At, at sort of joining a global marketplace and realizing that which side of the road you drive on, even as an island nation, kind of changes your relationship to the import-export 
business, the things that you make, the just the way you're oriented. But Iceland decided to make the switch, and in 1968 they did. Now that was a much smaller. Um, you just have to call six people. Yeah, that's right. You're just like, it, hey, uh, <laughs> Bridget, can you stay home? One guy in a straw hat walks out into the middle of the road with white gloves on and goes, not there, there, go there. The prime minister is out, like literally <laughs> conducting traffic. Um, but Iceland was not the last country to do it. Um, in 1978, so the the... The residents of Okinawa, um, over the course of the second half of the 20th century, went from feeling like the United States military was a real boon to the economy. Thanks for coming in. To feeling like the United States military was a rapey exploiter. And they were, uh, and continued to be less and less welcome on Okinawa all the time. Uh, You know, the United States still has military bases and a military kind of uh, residency throughout Japan, but the vast majority of, of U.S. military bases and service people are on Okinawa. Huge Navy base. And Okinawa doesn't, uh, or the Okinawans increasingly don't like it. And so over time, there uh, the Okinawan um, independence movement, one of the ways that it expressed itself. Oh, I am. Was, and independence, I mean, they are part of Japan, right? But independence from the yoke of American military. In 1978, Okinawa did what is pretty rare, which is switch from right to left. And they rejoined the rest of their country, the rest of their country in, uh, in switching over to the left-hand side. And that's not just a symbolic move because it makes it harder for, you know, cars from the base, right? right? To, right. Get, to get on and off local roads. And so, yeah, now, I mean, the cars, the American cars that are on the base now, all of a sudden, I mean, that was also like a, like a switcheroo. Uh, when Hong Kong was reunited with China, China drives on the right and Hong Kong as a, as a British vassal state was, uh, was left drive. Mm-hmm. And as part of the special relationship that Hong Kong has with China, uh, China agreed to retain right-hand drive in, in Hong Kong. It would have been a nightmare to try to... Can you imagine? Yeah. But, but uh, there you have it. Do you think it's coming? Like, are they, is, at some point, is Beijing going to say, just kidding, or is it just too much of a hassle? The deal is that until 2047, Hong Kong gets to retain it, its special status, in some ways and not others, right? I don't think you can, you can um, like, have a big Falun Gong... <laughs> uh, super party in Hong Kong any more than you can anywhere else uh, in China, but but you but you know some of the Hong Kong specific rules will still apply until 2047. But most recently, the last nation to or the most recent nation to make this switch is the nation of Samoa, which is a separate country from American Samoa. Yes, and Samoa had been driving on the right all this time, partly because of its, uh, you know, its relationship with Tahiti. But now 
Samoa, the nation, is sort of administered by New Zealand and has a has a relationship with oh, right. with Australia and New Zealand that's much stronger. Some of those nations have even been changing their time zone to match the, the business day in Australia and New Zealand. Right. And they want to be in the same time zone. As New Zealand has become more and more a regional powerhouse, and now, as we know, as futurelings will know, a global military powerhouse, the New Zealand Navy. I mean, it was the only place that survived... Right. You know, the great disaster. Right. It's where all the Amazon executives now live in their underground bunkers. But Samoa switched again, unusually, from right to left in 2009. Well, I didn't even hear about this. <laughs> right. It. Uh, I guess I can see why I wasn't informed. Something else was going on in 2009 that day, I guess, that you didn't, uh, you didn't follow the news. So it's still a possibility. Um, for us, for the U.S., well, we, we switch to the left. We could switch over. You know, the U.K. actually had a a, a pretty um, serious debate about it. How recently? In the sixties, huh? Uh, and it became a political issue. The conservatives were against it. It right. was part of that, like Britain first eurozone, blah blah blah. Yeah, and uh, and the progressives, um, you know, made the case just as the progressives in the United States in the seventies made the case that we should adopt metric. The metric system. But it turned out the other side had all the shotguns to shoot at the signs. That's right. And so so it seems now that we are living in a static world. One third of the people drive on the left. But really, it's it remains anything can happen day. It works out okay. You know, maybe it's a, a little parable about uh, respecting each other's differences. A third of us just drive on the left-hand side of the road, something that would be fatal to the rest of us. And yet it, it's mostly fine. I really wonder why. As long as we stay away from each other. I guess the parable ends there. As long as the different people never interact. Right. Close the borders. Right. As long as you have the illusion of heterogeneity in your life <laughs> or homogeneity in your life. Yeah. Thinking about it, where would you choose? Oh, you know, Ireland is one I, I forgot to mention as still being a country that drives on the left in Europe. But again, an island. Where would, If you could change... Which side of the road a country drives on? Which country would you choose? I can choose one country. You can choose one country in the world. What would you choose? Uh, wow. I mean, you could really, where could you cause the most trouble? By making the U.S. left-hand drive, I guess? I, I think if you made India drive on the right and just change it overnight. And don't tell anybody? I don't know if anyone would notice. <laughs> and that concludes... Dagen H, or however you say H in Swedish. Should this be Dagen Ash? Dagen Ash. I have no idea. Entry 313.ez2116, certificate number 30932, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, as you may have heard before, uh, we were products of our time and were therefore available on social media at Omnibus Project. Uh, I was at Ken Jennings. You can find John usually on Patreon, best place to find him, and his OnlyFans, mm. and his cameo. That's right. Come on by. <laughs> he'll say he'll tell you happy birthday or, or uh, wish you a happy Purim. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy Purim, everyone. He'll, <laughs> it doesn't even matter what time of year it is. No matter what you what you message you request, John will wish you happy Purim. No happier holiday. You uh, could find us at uh, via electronic mail at theomnibusproject at gmail.com uh, or through old-timey regular mail, which um, had not yet been dismantled, at uh, Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 
98155. We got some international mail here, although. Really? International mail? I lost the box. That was one of my uh, least favorite catalogs to get uh, when I was a teenager. M A L E? I don't know how I got on that mailing list, but international mail, they had a lot of sweatpants that had like cod pieces in them. This was actually just some fetish thing that you didn't know about. No, it was like an 80s. That was uh, people that wore muscle shirts. International mail was like a fashion catalog. A lot of pleats. They had a lot of pleats in their pants. We got a note from Octavia, if that is your real name. Hello, Octavia. Who enjoyed the Lego set. Oh, I I assumed this was from... Oh, no, it's not. I assumed this was actually from, like, Australia, because what it contains is a a little off-brand Lego Sydney Opera House. Oh, isn't that cute? But it's not a Lego. No, and it also doesn't look anything like the Sydney Opera House. (laughs) I mean, it's as good as you can get with 22 Lego-like pieces. That doesn't really... Let me see that. If... If I asked you which world landmark that was, you would probably guess the Sydney Opera House. But if I didn't tell you it was the Sid- mm. it was the Sydney Opera House, how weird! It's just kind of a, lo- a lumpy white thing. It says compatible, fits all leading brands of <laughs> fits all leading brands. <laughs> Snap tight. When I buy cheap Lego knockoffs at the drugstore, I want to make sure I can go home and put them right on my Lego. This is weird. This thing. I don't know what to. Uh, it feels like if I were a, if if we had a different kind of bunker here, we might display that kind of thing as a like, oh look at this funny thing. But it's that would be a different kind of bunker. I'm gonna build it. It's only 22 pieces. I'll build it right now. Octavia says that her daughter is very into Lego. She does not want to say Legos, and her daughter uses them to make sea creatures and interdimensional portals. Oh, nice. That's a, that's a troubling combination. I wonder if her daughter is only four, that is really troubling. I mean, especially if the portals actually work. Hmm. Does it just look like a portal or is she summoning things? I wonder if her daughter goes to a, a special school run by a bald man in a wheelchair. The, uh, so yeah, pl- feel free to send us uh, whatever off-brand CVS Legos you like. Um, Octavia had, had no qualms about it. Um, you can also find your fellow listeners by looking up Futurelings mm-hmm. on Fora like Facebook or Discord or Reddit. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, the best way to support the show, there's lots of things you can do. You can tell your friends. You could write a review. You could you could rate it on your podcast platform of choice. Oh, we've never suggested this before. Please rate and review. Unless, wow. unless you don't like the show. Unless you just hate listen to it twice a week. No, don't Then do don't leave your one-star review like... These guys don't understand cricket. No, or you could you could leave a five star review and then spend the whole review saying these how guys bad don't understand are. cricket. I love hating this show. <laughs> All yeah, we, we'll attract that kind of listener. Mm-hmm. We, there is a lot of Facebook discourse today. The uh, as we're recording this, the cricket entry just came out, and oh. there's a lot of people who are just extremely angry about it. Well, that's an example of a show that you tried to explain cricket to me, so I'm kind of absolved of responsibility because I admitted I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And, uh, and I tried to explain it from the point of view of somebody who only understood baseball. And I feel like yeah. that paradigm w- did not strike the cricketers as a, as a very sporting or a cricket way to discuss cricket. I have, n- I have never met someone who was a fan of cricket that didn't first acknowledge that cricket was impossible to understand. Like they can't, no fan of cricket can feel like, oh, cricket. It's just garden variety Facebook pedantry where people are like, ugh, I can't believe they butchered this cricket show. 
And then someone asks, oh, what did they get wrong? And there's really not a lot of... Yeah. I feel like it would be more like, well, I would have explained this more or... Yeah. They said this was true, and that is, but they didn't say unless. Yeah, that was... My, that. I loved all the commentary we got on my uh, episode about canning, where there were a lot of comments that were like, this is terrible, this is dangerous. And, it, and I said, in what way? And then uh, the commenters were like, well, I mean, you got everything right, but you didn't mention the one thing that... I got my PhD. That I'm interested in. It's like, oh. Oh, this is good. The laws, somebody emailed me today to say, oh, my brother loves cricket and he said the show is pretty good. But oh, I nice. love but I love cricket and it made me want to gouge my ear off. Oh, sure. And I'm not even sure about the, the grammar or the anatomy of that it sentence. It made me want to gouge my ear off. Well, it's not elegant. I'm not going to gouge it and I'm not going to cut it off. I'm going to gouge, gouge it, it off. off. Sounds, sounds painful. No, it sounds kind of hot. <laughs> I mean, if you're into torture porn, it feels a little bit like Reservoir Dogs. Although I am kind of get digging into this now. Somebody just said that it's illegal in cricket to bowl, to bend your elbow more than 15 degrees when you're bowling. Really? Is that the only sport where the umpires have a protractor? <laughs> anyway, if you're interested in cricket discourse, the Futurelings Facebook page is the place for you. But in addition to writing reviews, which is available to all budgets. Please write and review. You could support the show with uh, by going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and looking at the array of perks available to our supporters and deciding which fits your lifestyle. Lifestyle perks. That's what we're here for. Yeah, we're, uh, we're goop, basically. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past where we are still archaically driving on the right side of the road instead of hovering above traffic in uh, in a state of blissful sort of uh, multi-dimensionalism we have no idea how long our bilateral civilization survived we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording like all our recordings may have been our final word but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus